You can make yourself taller? How do I do that? Bro, sorry. That doesn't, you don't get that. That's like high level shit, bro. You got <laughs> to be in the Illuminati to, to grow when we want to. I wore my platforms too, just in case. That's the voice of real estate investor, Nick LaMagna, and I'm Chris Wyvin, and this is Won't Back Down, presented by BioAccelerator. Nicky Knuckles is a guy who's from my hometown. He's super successful as a businessman, and it all really stemmed from him losing his hand in, a, in an accident while he was doing construction in some machinery shop. Um, so he lost all four of his, well, he lost four fingers down to the knuckles, hence why we call him Nicky Knuckles. And uh, he's just a great human being. Um, it's amazing to hear how he came out of that situation and found the silver lining and changed his life for the good and is now, uh, you know, became a big time real estate investor and has done really well for himself. He does the A-Game podcast. He is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've rolled with him a bunch of times, and he is, he's a complete animal, even though he's a smaller dude and he only has one finger on one of his hands. He is still an animal. Um, and I think his story is very inspirational. All that is next. But before we begin, I want to tell you about Won't Back Down's presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. I ended up having uh, stem cells down in Medellin, Colombia about six weeks ago now, and I feel so much better. Um, and I know it's going to you know, get better over time. It's supposed to take up to six months to have full effect. And uh, I'll be back to fighting very soon. And I want to thank BioAccelerator for allowing that to happen. And also, thank you for sponsoring the show. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Nikki Knuckles. Nick LaMagna, a.k.a. Nikki Knuckles, <laughs> on the jiu-jitsu mats and in Baldwin. We're from the same hometown. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you becoming successful. Well, I feel you were successful probably even before I was successful. But anyway, great seeing you, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, man. The show's been awesome. I've been listening a lot. That uh, The latest, Longo and Kevin James, were both uh, very inspiring and, and entertaining at the same time. And you're doing an awesome job. You're the man. I appreciate it. I, I was on uh, the A-Game podcast as well. You're crushing it on there as well. I've seen you had Uriah Faber on. Yeah, this. man. I had Uriah on. Pe people have been really cool about coming on. That's awesome. And you had the guy from Bigger Pockets, who, who, Dave Green on? Or? I both. I had Brandon Turner and uh, and David Green. And David Green was actually supposed to come out to see uh, I quit this last fight at MSG. He was uh, he was revving up to go see uh, your next one or Aljo's next one, but we're supposed to link up with one of the fights. Both those guys are now doing jujitsu. So it's, uh, it, oh, I mean, dude, it's, it's been the common denominator for like most of the the business guys or people from other realms like the Brian Callens. Jiu-jitsu, man, it's, it's just bringing everybody together. It's the new golf. Yeah, I'll take that because I suck at golf. If this is the new golf, then I'm such a good businessman. Is that you think that could be the future? People just go go rolling jujitsu with each other and like talk business? Yeah, I think so. Think about like some of the most successful people. Like I, I remember sitting there one day and we were, we were all on the mats. It was like it, I think it was at Levitan or East Meadow, one of several schools. And I was like a day guy because, you know, I didn't have like a normal nine to five. And I started talking about real estate one day. I, f I forget like who we were talking about. And all of a sudden, everybody stopped. 
and started listening and asking questions. And I looked around and I was like, oh yeah, it's like a Tuesday at noon. Like half the people here are either like firefighters, police, teachers that might have all for a holiday. Everybody else is pretty much like a, a businessman or entrepreneur or a business owner. And I started realizing like the guys like the Bahama Phils and, you know, mm-hmm. you hit like all the people that come through at uh, Henzo Gracie's and just the different <laughs> guys, man. Like there's almost, almost every single aspect of something I need in business or somebody hits me up and asks me if I know somebody, the best, most reliable people I find wind up being through my jujitsu connections every single time. Yeah. I think there's, because the common denominator of jujitsu people, it's like you understand what the other person goes through, that you guys share a certain passion and you understand what it's like to do, to do jujitsu. And in order to do jujitsu, you have to be humbled so many times over and over and over again. So, you know, these are humble people. They're not afraid to lose in, in, in something, because when you go down to jujitsu, when you start first starting off, you're going to get manhandled by people that are bigger than you, by people that are smaller than you. Um, you're going to be tapping to things that you you would think you would never tap to. Um, and it just has a way of humbling you. And so I feel like there's a certain respect between anybody who does jujitsu. And I cross this over to wrestling as well. It's, just, it's the same concept uh, why I think wrestlers stick together and then you got jujitsu guys stick together. And now it's almost like all of combat sports kind of sticks together as mixed martial arts has evolved. The fraternity has grown. There's not a, um, there's not like this, big separation between jujitsu guys and wrestlers and, and wrestlers and like MMA guys. It's kind of like everybody takes everybody in to the family and helps support each other. And uh, for that reason, I agree with you. I think um, in terms of business, the mindset you, that you need to be successful in jujitsu is the same mindset you need to be successful in, uh, in sports and, and jujitsu and wrestling and all, and all that. So it's a great crossover. Yeah, I completely agree, man. And I, I think on the flip side of that, which is interesting for you because I would always think about that. I remember you coming in in like a blue gi with like a giant white belt you couldn't tie and then still catching me in arm bars. Like, I don't remember you ever coming in and being the guy who got like manhandled. You were always beating everybody up. But I think about that because there's guys in business that they're used to being the black belts. Like they're used to being the boss. They're used to calling the shots. And that's been going on for years and years and years. And they've never really had to be like in a beta situation or challenged or uncomfortable. They have people around them that are listening to everything they say. And then they go into jujitsu. And I've seen a lot of them, like, and I'll have conversations with some of my friends. I'll buy them privates. I'll be like, dude, this will make your life better. This will make your business better. Just go. I set you up here. Go take five lessons with this guy out here. And they just won't show up. And and you find out that it's because they don't like the feeling. It's been such an unfamiliar thing for so long of walking in and having to be the white belt again, you know, in their Mm -hmm. work, because nobody cares in jujitsu when you walk in what your tag is for your company if you're a ceo if you have a million dollars you have nothing they don't nobody gives a shit like nobody cares Mm. so um i think that there's something humbling about showing back up a few times and i think that's where initially there's some resistance with a lot of the business guys but when the brandon turners and the david greens and some of these guys come in there and they start to to relearn that process of being humbled again and having to find that struggle again. I think it reignites their passion in in business because it, it gets stale, it gets boring, it gets frustrating. So I do like that. And I like even the guys like Gary Tona, when I had Gary Tona on my podcast and he talked about switching over to MMA and he was like, dude, the first time I sparred MMA, I realized like how bad I actually did suck at that. And then I realized how long it took me to get good at jujitsu. And I realized that I have this whole mountain I have to climb again. And did I really want to do that? And his answer was yes, which I think most people's is probably like, no, I'm going to stick with being the black belt over here. So, you know, I think it just does a lot for people's character. Yeah. And there's nothing better than like rolling with a guy like Bahama Phil and 
for years, you don't find out like what they do for a living, you know? And then all of a sudden you find out like, oh, they're, they're all, this guy, he's a millionaire. Like this guy that like, you don't realize who you're, who you're really wrong with. I, you know, I love how humble everybody is on the mat and you don't, you have no idea what anybody really does uh, as far as profession until you get to know them, you know, outside of the mats. And I, and I love that. There's no uh, ribbon that you get to wear to, to come in to show that you're the man outside of these mats. So take it easy on me. It's just, nope, you're going to get what you get, you know? Um, so tell me, Abe, how- dude. Abe is a great example of that. That guy is ridiculously successful. And just like, you know, you, you wouldn't know offhand. Then you see the stuff that he's accomplished. I, I think it's just amazing. You know, it really is. Yeah. He doesn't put on, he is not, he is not your typical successful sounding person too. He's <laughs> blue collar. He's rough around the edges, but he is super successful. And it shows that like you don't have to pretend to be somebody different, you know, in order to be successful. You could be yourself, you know, and Abe is a great uh, you know, example of that. Um, tell me, so obviously I think people at this point are gonna understand that you're in in business and you're successful. Um, tell me how you got into business, uh, into the real estate business um from the start. Sure. It's, it's, it's weird because I'm used to asking people questions. I'm not used to having to think about my answers for stuff. But I remember, oh, you know, look at me. Are you kidding me? That's all <laughs> I used to do. No one, no one asks me questions anymore. It's just me. Yeah, it's a nice change of pace, though. But the um, dude, I remember I, I, I went to Albany. I went upstate and I was uh, I was going for criminal justice. I wanted to be an air marshal after, after September 11th. I tried to get into DEA, FBI. I was doing ATF. I just took all the tests I could for like government agencies, law enforcement, civil service, counterterrorism. I got my degree in criminal justice. And then I was going to, you know, you wait a long time to you take the written test and you wait and you get called for the psychological and you wait and you take. So there's a process. And I remember I graduated. And then my thought process was I was going to go and try and get into a a construction union because I wanted to help build the Freedom Tower, which at that point, didn't start, but they kept saying like, you know, any month now we're going to start building this. And I just always thought it would be a really cool thing that if, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now I have kids or, you know, my dog, Ralph, I go, Hey, look, I, I helped build that thing. I put a nail in somewhere. It was just something cool to be able to say I took part of, you know, I remember yeah. talking to this brat and she was like, yeah, my grandfather like helped build the original <laughs> towers. So I, uh, so I started looking to do that. And, um, you know, I, I went in one day, I was doing construction and, uh, the machine, that I was working on, the the safeties had failed and it came down and it, you know, crushed my hand. And that kind of like changed everything for me. So I wasn't really looking ever to get into business. It was one of those things that wind up being at the time, you think it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. And then you realize that it was one of those things that was like a, a wake up call that opened the door for you that maybe you wouldn't have found without that. So, you know, the next, the next year went by and I was doing physical therapy and occupational therapy every single day, you know, sometimes twice a day for a year, just going back for surgery, surgery, surgery. So I was kind of out of everything. And then towards the end of that year, maybe a year and a half later, I started getting all the calls of like, hey, good job, your number's up. Come in, like we're going to start the academy for the fire department, for the police department, for the DEA, for whatever it was. And for the most part, with the exception of one or two of them, I I scored really well on the written test. So it was looking pretty good that I had some options. And then I would go in and they would say like, hey, you know, what's everything's looking good, but what's going on with your hands? So I went kind of back through the story of like, oh, you know, funny thing happened. I went to work, machine came down, can't use my hand anymore. And then they were like, okay, well, we're going to have to have you retest all this stuff. So you're going to have to redo the physical, you have to redo everything because we need to make sure that your hand's not an issue now. So I spent the next like year or so just going back and retesting all the stuff. And then I started getting to the end of that, which took, you know, a long time. I remember walking in. And then there started being a common theme that they would be like, hey, man, shut the door. 
here's the deal. Like you passed everything, but at the end of the day, we're never going to hire you because your hand is a liability. Even if it's a 0.0001% liability, God forbid anything happens, it's going to be very easy for somebody to be like, well, he never should have been in that job. And none of the departments are going to wind up taking that risk on. So, you know, good luck. And I remember saying like, well, why'd you just waste the last like 12 to 18 months of making me redo all this if you were never going to give me a shot anyway? And they said, well, if we didn't let you at least try and fail, you could have sued us for discrimination. And I was like, well, I would have rather, you know, you just wasted all my time. So I was uh, obviously super bummed out. They thought you were part of the cancel. (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly what it was. (laughs) Mani was the original woke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. So they they canceled me. All the departments canceled me. And then uh, (laughs) my mom followed me around with the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. You know, I was just kind of bumming around and being depressed. And she kept telling me to read the book. And I kept just, you know, being a brat and telling her no, no, no. And then one day I read it. And I remember just like it completely flipped everything for me of like, oh, wow, like people make all this money through real estate. And there's all these ways that you can, instead of financing things, you can buy the assets to finance things. And then just, I really related to the whole rich dad, poor dad thing. And just how these little decisions really change stuff. And then it said, uh, you know, no money, no credit. And I was like, I don't have any money. I don't have any credit. That's perfect. I, I qualify. And then it, dude, this was the time where like, you'll probably find this funny, like the news day came and it was a free two hour, like Robert Allen seminar at like the, the the Marriott next to the Nassau Coliseum type of thing. Yeah, you know? So yeah. you would have to like, they're all over all over Instagram now, but then it was like, you had to read the paper to see where something was coming That's in. Awesome. So man, I went in there and I just started uh, just learning as much as I could about real estate. And I, I did that for a while and just took classes and connected with people. And it was like going in and out of ballrooms every weekend. And then eventually I, uh, I got the courage to kind of jump in and start buying some properties and, and doing some deals. And I remember calling up my parents and saying like, Hey, I, I think I'm going to buy a property today. And, and my mom was like, well, that's kind of what you've been training to do for the last, you know, six, 12 months, whatever. So do your thing, you know, we trust you. And I, I remember like, I always look back to that because I was so scared to buy that first property. And I was almost hoping that she would say like, no, 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 don't do that. Cause I see that all the time now when people call me and are like, Hey, I want to buy a property. And then we get to the finish line and it's like, well, my wife won't really let me, my husband. So them supporting that decision was like such a huge point in my life to go through and actually, you know, pull the trigger and buy that first deal. And that was by far the hardest one. And, uh, you know, from there, I just started, I, I had this whole mindset of, you know, I, I had my health and I had these jobs and I thought I was going to have my pick of the litter of any of these law enforcement positions I was going to be in. And I was going to do my 20 years and then go retire to Florida. And that was all kind of taken away from me overnight. And I went from, you know, training to be in the Golden Gloves to not being able to walk from all the surgeries and the anesthesia. And I remember it was just like the biggest mental thing of like, which I'm sure you can relate to now of, you know, one minute you're in tip top shape. And then the next day you're like, I can't even stand up. How did this, how did this happen? So I started thinking like I was on the final destination. Like I had a bunch of bad stuff happen prior to that with just crazy things. So I was in this mode where I felt like I only had a short amount of time to try and recapture everything. So I just started buying as many properties as I could, which if I could go back now, I would have slowed it down a little bit, but, you know, I jumped in, I bought like eight houses in six months and just started swinging for the fences. And, uh, you know, some learned some things that work, learned some things that didn't, but, uh, just kind of went on from there, you know, just went into real estate and I never looked back after that. Man, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think, uh, an important thing that I need to bring up is that I think one of the things that make you, uh, a special person is that you're throwing, you're throwing around this hand injury. Like it was not that big of a deal. You are a black belt in jujitsu, um, and your hand is not just like this minor injury. You had a severe hand injury where you lost how many how many fingers did we lose? What, t- t- just can you explain 
be as honest as possible. What I want to know what happened that day because there's rumors. People talk about it, but I feel like <laughs> everyone has a different story. What happened to Nikki Lamagna, also known as Nikki Knuckles, the day in the machinery room? If it was in the machinery room. Yeah. So what, how did I turn into Nikki Knuckles is what you're yeah. asking. Yeah. Yes. So, I didn't have um, well, I didn't lose them. I know, I know where they are, but they're, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have them anymore, but yeah. That's, so, that's uh, a, is that an amputee joke? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was, um, dude, it was crazy. Cause I went into work. I remember it perfectly. Like I remember walking in, not feeling good that day, putting like, emergency like thing. I remember going into the job and you know, you walk in, you're making like nothing. It was just kind of like a filler job. And I remember like there was these um it was like a press. So the the place like like a press thing comes down and like the the particular machine I was working on, like you could it doesn't say a lot about me, but you could pretty much train a monkey to do it. Like you take it, you slide it in, it presses it, you roll it over. What were you pre- what were you pressing? Do you know what you were you were just like just just flattening cardboard. For recycling no, no. So, so like the 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 place what it does is um like you know when you get like uh you order the headphones or or like a boom box let's say something like that and then you you open up the box and it's fitted like all the styrofoam and everything is fitted to fit all the pieces and the, the yeah. box is made to so what they did there was they took like huge bulk orders for specific things that somebody would say here's my product can you make a, a packaging to protect it and then a box to fit it to like efficiently and economically ship it. So gotcha, it was very gotcha. like specific things. So you had to take the dimensions of like whatever was doing and make these cuts and get it to these certain sizes. So that way at some point you could put the thing together, put okay, their stuff gotcha. up and ship it out. So that day, like, you know, you cut the, you cut it to a certain point, you slide it in at the different marks. So it kind of like comes in and cuts it where it needs to. And then you put it down and then this press comes down and basically cuts at like a perfect angle. So it's, it's like a, probably like a 2000 pound press, but it's got like serrated edges. So it'll just cut and press whatever that is. So it was like hundreds and hundreds of those slide it in press, put it over, slide it in press, put it over. And then the, the fall off of the stuff it was, it was cutting kind of piled up. And so we needed to really like figure out how to get that. Cause and dude, I had like less than 10 left. It was one of those things where like, it was so avoidable, like in the, in hindsight, you know, yeah. And uh, I went to go kind of clear the fall off and you have to do the machine. Like it's so loud. You can't miss it when it's on. And it, it like, you know, every it, it's th- this big piece of metal that spins and it like makes the thing press down over and over again. So you shut it, you wait for it to shut off. And then there's supposed to be a pole that goes through the middle. So God forbid it does start to move just from gravity or whatever. This pole would stop it from coming down. There was no pole. So I was cleaning out the machine. And since it was off, it was just kind of, coming down like that. And I didn't hear anything. I didn't know anything. And then the next thing I know, I feel something tap my hand. And I oh, thought it was somebody telling me like, hey, hey, break time. Because I hadn't been there that long. It was like probably first coffee break. And I look over like to the guy next to me and like nobody's around me. And I'm like, that's weird. And then I look down and I see that the plate caught my hand. And I was like, oh, it's not good. What do you so mean I start caught your hand? Tell me what that means. Well, so like it, it there's like, um, there's like the table where like you're sliding the stuff on and then there's the press. So my hand yeah. was hanging over the table. So the press came down and like trapped my, like me at the knuckles. And then the bottom part was on the table. So there was nowhere to go. It was only going down. So I was like, all right, let me try and push it up to get it off my hands and pull my hand out. And then obviously you couldn't because the thing was too heavy. And I remember thinking it's going to go down before it goes up. And then I, you know, looked around and kind of started yelling at the kid next to me and the kid next to me was in shock 
And I was like, man, this is going to suck. So wait, how it, long is this? Ha- like, how long do you know my hand's about to get cut off? Oh, uh, I dealing mean, with ant- anticipation. It, it's, it seemed, it seemed like it was in slow motion at the time. In reality, it was probably, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, maybe That's something. a long ass time, bro. I, I mean, I, I was I, stuck I could, that could, long in there. Well, I had enough time to, to think about like that. It was happening and try and like tell the person next to me that I was going to need it. Cause I remember my thought process was, uh, yeah, I haven't told the story in so long. It's so weird. But, uh, I remember my thought process was like, I have to tell somebody to start the car. Cause I'm just worried that I'm going to wind up like bleeding out. Like I know, I don't know anything medical do, you know, I watch yeah. like freaking Doogie Howser or some shit. I don't know. So the, uh, <laughs> yeah. so the, the, uh, the guy kind of froze, but so I had enough time to think like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I need to get somebody's attention. So there, there was like enough time for that. Um, but you know, with the adrenaline going and stuff, who knows? So then I, I remember like it happens and then I took my hand and I like wrapped my hand in my shirt. What do you mean? It ha- I want, I want more details. Oh, I listen, everyone's seen my leg break in half on national television. Dude. My bones went shooting through my skin and my chest. Why are you being so PG? You know what? Are you kidding me? Be proud of our injuries, bro. I'm all scarred up. You're right. You're right. You know, normally, normally I would say no, but you, you've earned it. Yours was way more public than mine. So I got my comfort science here. I'm in memes every two seconds. There you go. You got your science product. I prefer monster energy, of course, but. How dare you? How dare you? Um, Yes. So, I mean, like the the graphic side of it. So are you screaming? Can you see your fingers come off? Is it, or is it on the other side of the press? You can't see. No. So the, the press was like pretty thick, so I couldn't see it. I just felt it. And then immediately, like, you know, if you want great, you heard the break. It sounded like a tree snapped in the middle of the winter. It was January 31st, 2005, 8.30 a.m. And it was like the loudest snap ever. I remember it perfectly. Like, and I was like, that was not good at all. And then I went to go like wrap my hand. So I, I like, I knew so it you t- happened. So the press goes back up now. Now you're able press to goes back up. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it came back up because it was kind of off. So I don't know well, if it, I actually don't remember if it had enough. So you're free. You're, I'm free. Your yeah, I'm free. Done. Because yeah. the fingers and everything are gone. They're, yeah. they're completely severed. Yeah. Not hanging on by a thread. <laughs> oh, no. So you just completely severed down to your knuckles. Dude, d- d- four fingers? Do you need like a hug or something? Are you all right? <laughs> you see, like you're like Dexter into this. I see. <laughs> yeah, I just want to I, I just want to get this right. So four fingers are now completely cut off, down yeah. to the down, completely gone. Yeah. Your thumb is still good though. Thumb's still good, yeah. Okay. So your thumb was out. Right, Part of the so, thumb did get cut. I didn't know that until after. All right. So the thing goes up. You're like looking at your fingers. Now you're paranoid. You want to wrap it because you think you're going to blood out, bleed yeah. out. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I pull my shirt over them. And, you know, again, you want like details. I remember like grabbing my hand and like it was so sharp because like the bones were kind of cut. And I remember like hurting my other hand with that. So like I wrap my hand up and I was like, all right, you know, I, I think I'm supposed to wrap it. I think I'm supposed to hold it. And then. I was running around trying to get people's attention. And this one guy, Steve, was like, uh, and I used to work there with Mike Rinaldi. Shout out, shout out to Mike Rinaldi, about to retire from the police academy or police academy, police force. But um, I remember we uh the guy jumps in the car with me and we're we're driving there and he gives me his jacket and I like wrap my hand in the jacket and his jacket's like full of blood now. And he's looking at me and he's like, dude, why are you holding your hand? And I'm like, well, what do you mean, dude? And I told him what happened, and he just kind of looked at me in shock and he was like, Oh my God. He's like, You were running around. I thought you ran over your, like somebody ran your foot over with the forklift or something, the way you were running. I thought you hurt your foot. And then he kind of froze up on me and I was like, oh crap. So then he's like stopping at red lights. And I was like, please just go. So he drives me to the hospital. I think we went to whatever one in Oceanside's in South Nassau over there. South Nassau. Good. It's my favorite. That's where I <laughs> spent a lot of time in South Nassau. 
Yeah. So I went there and then uh, I remember, dude, I had been there. I had been there like a week before because I thought my appendix burst. So I was just there and I walked in and, and uh, he dropped me off at the front and I walked myself in and I was like, hey, my, I just you know got my hand caught in a machine, like I lost fingers. I need to see somebody. And they were like, okay, you know, have a seat. And I was like, have a seat. Mother. I was like, South Nassau emergency room sucks. I don't care what <laughs> they think of it. They suck every damn time, bro. There's been times I'm walking in there. I feel like I'm dying and they just don't even pay attention. They're like, take a seat. I'm like, no. At every emergency room though. It's, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And I, like, I always use that example of like every, every city and state I've ever been in that I've ever gone to an emergency room. They're always packed no matter what day, no matter what time. And everybody in that room has that same look on their face of like, I never thought this was where I was going to wind up today. And like, I always think about that of like, man, like every day people have no idea like what could happen. And that's like always a reminder of like most packed room in the hospital every day, everywhere. Uh, South Nassau is the worst though. I'm <laughs> with it. I, there's this place in South Carolina, this emergency room by us. We had to bring my son. He had uh, like an anaphylactic response to peanuts at one, uh, last Halloween. It was scary as hell. They were right in and out. There was, there was nobody. I've been there a couple of times now with the kids. There's no issues. Not like South Nassau. But anyway, continue. Um, yeah, man. So they uh, they told me to sit down. Then they started asking me medical questions. And I was like, hey, same thing as last week. Everything you asked me last week, same thing. Just put it in there. So, you know, eventually they they kind of had me come in and I kept asking people for stuff. And I remember it just seemed like it was taking forever for them to see me. And then Wait, you uh, were in the waiting room this whole time with no, they, they eventually moved me into like a room to sit on a bed to like wait for somebody to be seen to see me. But I, I remember them like saying like, hey, we're going to have to take like x-rays and do different stuff or whatever. So there was all kinds of tests and stuff they needed to run. Are we, are we dealing with extreme pain or you feel like at this point, it's just kind of like numb, your adrenaline's kicked in and it's not bad? No, I was definitely starting to get pain a couple hours after like at the hospital, I was starting to get pain. And then because I, I think I remember... There was a reason they couldn't initially give me pain meds. There was there was something that like they had to wait and then eventually they did. Um, but then they brought in like the trauma team and the trauma team was like, hey, we got to bring you to this other one. And then I went to the one in East Meadow by where Sarah's is, I guess, by like the prison. Yeah, the NASA Medical Center. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. So I went over there and I, I, I remember them in the in the ambulance. They were like, dude, you got like a, a precision surgical cut because it was like a, a big machine this should be no problem. We'll, we'll be able to get everything back together. And like, a, oh, wait, you, I'm sorry. You have your fingers with you? Yeah. So I, I, you grabbed yeah. your fingers with you? No, no, no. So the, one of the one of the other guys that we worked with was a uh, uh, like a retired New York City homicide detective and just had like nerves of steel. And he went and got my my the rest of my hand freaking took a Chinese food container and it was January. So we took a bunch of snow and he packed them in the snow in the Chinese container and drove them to the emergency room. So dude, it was wow. so crazy. Like the, so I didn't really think about what was going on with that part of it. I was just trying to be like, you know, I like make the pain stop, figure something out. Like, you know, just thinking ahead, your mind's racing, all these things yeah. about how life's going to change. So they told me like, don't worry, you'll be fine. Like, do you have any requests? And I was like, yeah, whatever you do, just don't call my mom. And they were like, no problem. I show up at the hospital my mom's there. And I'm like, dude, it's the only thing I asked for. They were like, well, we don't know who else to call. So I remember them like, pulling me in and do like my uncle Jerry was there. I remember they're like, Hey, we're going to bring you in for surgery. Don't worry. And I remember it was so crazy because I, uh, I thought I was sharing, uh, uh, an operating room with somebody. And I remember when they pulled me out of surgery, I was like, um, I was like, Hey, you know, your, your, your hospital is kind of ghetto. Like, why am I sharing a hospital room with somebody? It's disgusting. 
And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, when I got rolled into the, to the operating room, there was somebody else getting operated next to me. And they were like, no, homeboy sent your hand over there before we were working on it hours before you even got there. Like both of those beds were for you. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. But they were getting the fingers prepared to put them back on. Yeah. So they were already over there doing stuff. And, and what had happened was they thought it was supposed to be like a, a normal, I guess, normal for them surgery. And from what I understand, because it was a crush and not a cut, the blood flow wouldn't keep going. So they kept like, and, and apparently fingers are like very hard to work because everything's so small. So it's like hard to get in there. So it was like 30 something hours of surgery that they had to redo it like four or five, six times, just taking shifts and it would work. And then the blood wouldn't take, and then they'd have to do everything over again. So what? what happens is after, I think it was 30 hours, there's like a timeline that if you're under anesthesia for a certain amount of time, you risk brain damage. So oh, from, yeah, I was going to say, I've never even heard of 30 hours of surgery. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it was like, they, they maxed out whatever it was, which I had never heard of prior. Not good, bro. Yeah, no. Well, they, they called my, my parents and I guess there's like a, you ask permission, like, Hey, we could either keep going and try and save his hand, but he might have brain damage. What do you want us to do? And I was like, wasn't that something you should ask me first? Like before I went in, like, what if my parents were like, you know, he was never that smart. Just keep working on the hand. You know, like, <laughs> I would have wanted some sort of saying that, but uh, yeah, man. So I came out and they, um, you know, I just remember like looking around and my whole body was like swollen and uh, they were just like, do you remember what happened? And I did. And I was like, I thought everything was going to be good. And they were like, sorry, it wasn't. And then, uh, and that was kind of it. And I, I remember also like that they said from the drugs that they gave me that uh, like it, it caused a lot of problems because they were like, I guess at the time over giving medication, assuming that like people my age were coming in with a pretty decent tolerance because of all the drugs they did. But I was training yeah. in a box. I wasn't doing anything. And like my body had like a really bad reaction to it. So I remember them like having to put like the two back in and like I was, it was, it was a mess, man. It was, it was, it was kind of crazy, but yeah. Thanks for making me go back through that. <laughs> we're not done yet, bro. This is welcome to the won't back down podcast. This is what we do. But so they didn't get the, they couldn't get the fingers back on. Obviously, this is a really tough time and we know we ended up working out for you. Great. You know, you've turned into an awesome dude. It's, you know, there were, the silver lining was there. But can you go into from this moment on some of the toughest points that you went through and how you got through it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, my my first thing I remember, like the instant regret of thinking, you know, you're sitting there, you're going in, you realize what happened. I remember my dad kind of sitting there. My parents were like, like super support. Everybody was really cool and really supportive. But uh, I remember like regretting all the times I didn't go to the gym and all the times I like the, the fights that I could have taken that I didn't. And, uh, you know, all the stuff that I should have, could have, would have done that you thought you had another day to do that. I was like, man, I, if I can come out of this, like I'm going to start taking fights and I'm going to go to like, go to the gym every day and I'm going to eat better and I'm going to turn up the real estate stuff. And I remember also thinking like, man, my, my kind of plan for work is probably going to be changed now. And I remember there was a guy at the time that was teaching real estate to me and they would always use like the numbers are different now, but then it was like 20, 10, five, one. It was like something like for every 20 properties you look at, you put out 10 offers, five will get accepted. One of them will close. And you use that metric to reverse engineer how many properties you need to go look for to see how many you're going to buy. And I remember putting that note in my phone of like, if I get through this and I wake up, I want the first thing I look at when I look at my phone to be 201051, re reminding me to like get my ass in gear 
and start making a life for myself because I probably wasn't going to be able to do it through the law enforcement or even construction. So that was like the initial thing was like regret of the things I didn't do and then how I was going to start to try and like take care of myself because now it was very clear that whatever plan you had for your future, like the only person, it, that was like the aha moment for me of like, regardless of what job, what career, what anything, the only person that's going to be really the person I can rely on for myself financially is myself, like after something like this happens. So that was really a, a moment for me of like seeing all these people that like, you know, any day could get injured at their job. And then that's just it. And what do you do from there? You know? So um, then I started obviously going through the the self-loathing of like, you know, this is, you know, gross and I'm a freak and how am I ever going to get a girlfriend and like, you know, just everything with, uh, you know, the, the physical and like the emotional and the, that part of it that I think, you know, normal people go through. And then you start to run in that roller coaster of like, you know, what am I even worrying about what I look like? How, wait, what if I don't even wake up from this? What if, you know, so I kind of played that out. And then I remember them like giving me the drugs at one point. And I, I kind of walk up out of a haze and I remember there was like a priest and a bunch of people holding hands around my bed saying a prayer. And I remember like I had the tube. So I was, I, I thought they were reading me my last rites and I was like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like, and I remember trying to be like, no, no, like don't pull the plug. Don't what like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I'm trying to be like, no, no, no. And then like, I, I guess I passed out again. And I remember when they woke up and I was like, Hey, like, what the hell were you guys doing? And they were like, no, we were just saying a prayer for you. And I was like, oh man, like, so I was like really paranoid. And I remember everything after that was like, I, I, you, you probably know this now better than anybody, but I didn't realize what a big deal nerve damage was. And my nerves got severed and the sensations that were going through like my arm and my body were crazy. Like the freezing cold, burning hot, pain, numbness. And I just kept thinking like, okay, now what? Like now my arm's, are you guys going to have to take my arm? So I was calling the doctor and constantly like, is my arm going to have to come off? Is this normal? Is that normal? Like, I'm sure they were sick of me, but they were there. So I, I started every little ache and pain. I was like, okay, well now my foot's going to go. And, you know, you just start thinking you're going to lose everything and you start thinking the worst. And, you know, I remember just kind of going through that whole process of just like wondering like what was going to go on. And then I had to have like multiple surgeries over the course of like that week, because as the swelling goes down, you start to see like where things are healing and how the bones are going to go. And it was just uh, kind of like a, just a, a crazy wild process, man. I just try to feel it out and then get home. And then you start to, I mean, I think I, the way I kind of got out of that bubble was when I got home thinking like, you know, I, I, I have to get up. Like I need bars put on the walls to be able to get up to walk. Like do that. The 30 hours of anesthesia destroyed me. I couldn't, I had no energy. I couldn't do anything. I how long were you in the hospital for? I think a week, I think a week. I remember there was, uh, they were like cycling um, my my roommate a couple of times. It was just different guys that were getting like shanked at the police at the uh, at the prison. They would be like, <laughs> be like, oh, what are you in for? They're putting you in with the prisoners. Yeah, I remember like having a conversation with this one guy who had like either like just got stabbed or something, but he was like so happy to be in there. He was like, oh, I'm all good, man. And I remember like people coming to visit me, like Billy Coleman came and Ronaldo came and like all these guys. But um, yeah, so uh, I remember they took me home, and then. I was worrying about all these different things. Like, how am I going to do X? How am I going to do Y? How am I going to do Z? And I remember just thinking like, you know, none of that stuff matters. So the only thing that matters right now is like, can, how do I get up? And then like the next day it was like, okay, I got up. Can I walk a little bit? And I was like, okay, can I walk into the next room? Can I walk into the next room? Can I shower? But you know, you start looking at these little victories and then just kind of, you know, handling them every day. Like what are these little bite-sized things that I can do to get myself back? So I don't have to worry about, 
you know, boxing or jujitsu or, or, or money or any of these things right now. I just have to worry about what do I have to do today to get myself like one step closer. And that just was, you know, the, the mindset I had for that year and just kind of dug into real estate. I spent a lot of time just home, you know, I couldn't work. So it was like, you know, you're sitting around. So I was jumping on the computer. I was learning everything I could trying to figure out how to make a life for myself on the real estate side, trying to get my health back on track. And, um, I remember around that time too, like they, there was like three or four people I knew that had died from, from overdosing on pills and they were giving me like Oxycontin and like all this stuff, man. And I just, I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with it. So I remember I pulled myself off of them. I remember going through like withdrawals and stuff like, and that was not a lot of time that I was even on them and I was taking them as prescribed. And I remember thinking like, man, this is crazy that I'm feeling this way taking them as needed for such a small amount of time. I cannot imagine what it would be like being somebody who's like eating eight, nine, 10 of these things a day for a year, two years, three years. Like it's very eye-opening to like what happens and how people can get hurt and accidentally just get these terrible addictions that wind up like ruining their lives. It's freaking scary, man. Man, I can't believe what you went through. That's insane. Um, And when it comes to the, uh, the opioids, it's crazy because I remember, I mean, I've had 25 surgeries, so (laughs) Um, I've always been given painkillers and I never really had an issue. I didn't feel like I was ever going to get addicted to it or anything like that. And I never really have, but I remember there was a point where I was kind of done with the pain. And then I would, I took a, I took like a, one of the painkillers to go out and like hang out. I don't know if it was an appearance or something. I just felt so good. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is great. It was, it was, it just made me chill out. And then right away it clicked right away. It clicked like, man, this is how you get addicted. Like it's very easy. It feels good. You know, it feels good to, to do it. But you know, when you do have an injury, especially something as serious as yours and mine and whatever, or any setback that people have, one of the great things about having something like that is that you have time, life slows down, you know, you're you're recovering. And you could think about all the regrets that you have in your life. Like you were saying, like, yeah, I wish I would have took this fight. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. And it helps you become a better version of yourself. You know, it helps you like actually slow down life and figure out the things that you want to improve on. And, um, you know, whether it's your morning routine, the the different business opportunities, um, you know, being afraid to do certain things that you now think that you shouldn't be afraid of doing because you regret it. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits and ways to grow when you get injured. And that's why, you know, there's, there's always a silver lining. Yes. Um, you always have, but you have to be proactive with it. You have to, you know, when you're, when you're down and out, you have to think about the things that you want to change in your life. It's a time to improve yourself in every possible way. Um, it's awesome to hear your story that this injury really did catapult you to, to a whole new Nicolamania that you're, you're more happy with, right. That like you're doing, you're putting yourself in situations that you probably weren't going to be putting yourself in before the hand injury. Um, and, uh, it's inspiring. It's inspiring for me. I know that's going to be inspiring for a lot of people. So let's go, let's go into your business. So you start, tell me, let's just tell everybody what you do. Exactly. Cause so I, it's, I, it is confusing. I wouldn't even be able to, explain <laughs> it. I know because you dip your hand into a lot of different things too. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, the, the bulk of it is just real estate investing. And I, I think, um, you know, be, because the way I started investing was I, I couldn't invest in New York. I just mentally, I was like, it's, it's expensive, it's competitive. Like, how do I do this? And I started getting introduced to being able to invest in out-of-state properties in like Georgia, Vegas, like when they were cheap, you know, we were buying stuff for like $20,000, $30,000. And to me at that point, that was the thing that made me say like, okay, you know what? 
I can do that. That's scary to me, but not so scary that if I mess that deal up, it's only like a 50, 60, $70,000 house. I feel like I could bounce back from that. So that gave me a little bit of confidence to actually- were you Were you buying and holding and renting? Yeah. So Burr was the initial strategy I was looking for. So okay. what I started doing was- Can you explain I, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Non-real so, estate people out there. Yeah. So my my whole, you know, again, like my my thought process at the time was I need a nest egg because I just lost like what my career was. So I was told like, if you can pick up five properties, whatever you do, doesn't matter. If you just get five decent properties, even if you pay like asking price for them and you just hold them as solid rentals over the next 10, 15, 20 years, those are going to make you more in retirement than being a police officer ever would. And I remember thinking like, I'm just going to take the next six months buy five properties, hold them. And then over the next 10, 15, 20 years, those will appreciate. I can turn around, sell them, seller finance them, do something that that'll bring in monthly income and, and I'll have equity and I'll have all these things over the years. So that was kind of my my goal. So I started looking for these other markets to just calling realtors. And it was when the market was like about to turn and I was putting out like 300 offers to get one. But then the, the idea was you buy one undervalued. So like, let's say some of these ones I was doing in Michigan, when they're fixed up, they're worth like a hundred thousand, just to make the math easy. I go in and I buy them at thirty thousand, and then I I put in like maybe fifteen twenty grand, so I'm all into them for fifty. Now, when they're fixed up, they can rent out at let's say eight hundred nine hundred a month, and then I can go back to a, a lender and I can take out a refinance on that, either a rate and term, which means that whatever money I had in from whatever private money or like a hard money lender who will lend you money based on the property, not on you. Let's say I owe them 50 grand now, I can take out a loan against that for the 50 grand for like a 30-year loan versus a short-term loan. Or you can do what's called like a cash out refinance, which is kind of like a mini flip, which was the idea at that time. So if the house is worth a hundred grand after it's fixed up, I only owe 50 on it. I could technically go and take out like a 70, 80% loan on that and pull out 15 or 20 grand. So now I'm technically all into that property for 80. I still have $20,000 worth of equity on it. It's still cash flowing, but that $20,000 or $15,000 that I pulled out is technically tax-free money because it's borrowed money that I rolled into the loan. So you get all of your money back that you put in, plus tax-free profit on top of that to have either walking around money or go invest into another property. So that was the idea with the Burr strategy, which is popular again now, but at that time, it was a very dangerous time to be doing it because like for people who don't know, what a hard money lender will do is they're what's called an asset-based lender. So I had no money, no credit, no experience, no nothing. So I started calling hard money lenders and just saying like, how do I get money? How do I get money? How do I get money? And then a few of them were like, well, look, you don't have anything, but if you could start an LLC with some people who do, doesn't matter what you have or don't have, like you have the knowledge to do it, but get somebody who has credit or can show tax returns or has income. And then we can lend money to that corporation as a whole, regardless of like what it is. So each of you kind of bring something in. So I started making partnerships with people that just looked good on paper. And I was like, I'll do everything. You just sign the stuff. And so the hard money lender will give you the loan based on the property. So they go, we don't care about your credit. We don't care about your experience. We care that when we look at this property, we can justify that it's worth hundred grand after it's fixed up and this is the repairs and all these things check out. And God forbid we have to take it back. We only owe 50000 on a $100,000 property. We can make our money back all day. But when you go now, what people forget is the hard money lender doesn't care about you. 
But when you go back to a Chase or a Wells Fargo or a Wachovia or whatever bank, for the most part, and you go, hey, I now want to take out like a conventional bank loan to pay back the short-term high interest rate loan. They go, well, we need to see credit. We need to see income. We need to see tax returns. And you go, well, the other people didn't want to see it. Mr. and Mrs. Hard Money Lender, they didn't care. They go, well, they're not Chase. They're not Wells Fargo. We care. And now people were getting stuck in these high interest loans that you could either after 12 months, they foreclose on you or you're paying like an outrageous interest rate because it was only supposed to be for six to 12 months. So you had to start looking for either again, rate and term so you can't pull the cash out, but they feel a little bit safer. Or what we started to find is like, especially now it's, it's really popular is just these local banks will do things for you that big banks won't do. So I still run into that even today, like a property I just bought, I called to open up an account for a new a new corporation. And they were like, we don't work with those. None of the big banks will. So I went to a small bank and they were like, well, we need the business because we can't compete with Chase and Bank of America. So we're more flexible on a lot of these things. So, you know, for if anybody's listening and wants like the 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 caveat to that, I had to get around that. I always tell them, like, if that's a strategy that you just listen to and you go, that's something I want to do, the favor you need to do yourself is first go look for local banks and tell them I'm going to buy properties to buy and hold. What do I need to be all into them for? What type of credit requirements do you have? What kind of income requirements do you have? Because you will find the ones that will tell you like, hey, all we need is a 600 as long as there's like 30% equity in it. And you'll find the ones that'll do it, but get the approval first verbally for what you can refinance out of. Otherwise you wind up getting stuck and there's no point in even buying it. And then you can kind of reverse engineer knowing that you have that loan in place. So that's a very popular strategy for single family homes, for people that just take money, buy one, pull the money out, buy another one, pull it out, buy two, pull it out by four. And that's kind of what we've been doing on the commercial side too, because that same premise you can do on a house that's worth a hundred and you pulled out 70 and put 20 in your pocket. You can do that on a, on a commercial property that's now worth a million and you're into it for 500,000 and you're pulling out 700,000. So 200,000 goes into your pocket, you know, so that's like an exciting thing. So basically it's like the same strategies that kind of just go up. So I went from doing these like very small basic properties that made me feel safe. And then eventually you start to see that a deal is just a deal and there's somebody out there that'll finance it and somebody out there that'll buy it. And I mean, even up to like, I was trying to sell a a hotel for like $27 million and I was selling this portfolio of properties in California that was like, like probably around the same amount of money. And there was people that were like, yep, here's my proof of funds. I'll buy all of them today cash. And it was like, there's so much money out there for good deals. It really doesn't matter if it's a $10,000 deal or a $100 million deal. There's somebody out there that will buy it if it is a good deal. Why aren't these big banks taking on corporations like you? So that specific type of corporation, it's not that they don't because Chase, I, I do a lot of stuff with Chase just because I do stuff all over the country and I like to have a, you know, a, a bank that you know is almost everywhere. But so the specific property that we did here, um, there's something called like a series LLC that my guy Clint Coons set up. So you have like one LLC that's considered like your, your management LLC. But then I don't want to have to keep opening all these checking and savings accounts and all this bookkeeping and all the tax and all this stuff if I'm going to go pick up like all of these other rentals in this area for this new strategy I'm doing. So with the series LLC, some of the big banks go, well, to us, if you have a series LLC, we don't like working with that because there's like different things and there, there's a lot of easy ways to like have bank fraud or, or you have to track things very carefully. And I guess that there's just too much liability to do that. So they were just like, we just don't take on anything that's considered. Wait, a so a LLC. series LLC is when you have multiple LLCs inside one LLC. 
Yeah, I, I, this this is definitely not my wheelhouse, but yeah. Uh, so, like, let's say I have it's going to get tricky. So, like, let's say I have ten houses that I want to keep as rentals all around here, but I don't want people to obviously know that I own them, and I don't want to have to keep track of each LLC as a separate corporation and have to worry about all the bookkeeping, all like the ta- all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. What I can do now is set up a series LLC which is like, let's say it's like one, two, three LLC. That's what I do everything through. That's owned by another LLC in another state. So if anybody ever tried to say, well, who owns this series LLC? It would be owned by a company in another state Mm -hmm. that you can't ever see who owns that. It's like a public nominee. So like, I'm literally never tied to it. But the, the nice part is everything goes through that series LLC. And then every property you buy I can buy it in like Chris Weidman one LLC, and that becomes a cell of that series. So I can have 10, 15, 20 cells all under that one series. And I only have to really, I have to obviously make sure that I keep all my books so I know what's going in and out, but I'm only filing and doing all the stuff under that one management. So it just makes it way more efficient for me. But the big banks, for whatever reason, there's just weird stuff that they do sometimes that they just won't touch. Like I, I always look outside, like you can see, I have land out here that I'm looking to get like a refinance on. And I call 20 banks and, you know, 15 of them say, we just don't loan on land. And then another one goes, yeah, we do that every day. It's, it's, oh, it's one of those things, man. It's weird. They're, they're like stores. They don't always, they don't all offer the same product. You know, some have milk, some have electronics, like they're the stuff that they can do and the stuff that they will do is so different. You just have to call and kind of figure it out. And most of the time it's just policies that come from the top down. Like the guys at Chase don't even really know why they just know that like, Hey, I went to put this in. They said they can't do it. What do you want to do here? And sometimes you can work around it. And sometimes you just, you know, you get on the phone, you make some more calls and you find a way just like anything else, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the series LLC thing I got to look into because I, when we, when we got, uh, so I have three rental properties, but I think I have four LLCs for the rental properties because we're supposed to have, we're supposed to have another uh, rental property, but we didn't get it. Um but it's like confusing, you know, to oh, have yeah. that many LLCs, you know, the rent from each one goes into their own independent LLC and then like to check in on all that. It's like ridiculous. You um, should have Clint Kuntz in your podcast, man. He's phenomenal. He's got a massive following, huge YouTube channel. He's funny, but he knows this stuff. I've been working with him for probably six or seven years now. And he's been like one of the best guys to just explain it in a way that you can understand it where you're not like looking at, I mean, there's plenty of times I look at him and I'm like, mm, he's like, you need me to say that again. I'm like, yeah, I do. But he eventually gives it to you, but he, he can definitely help you with that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to definitely hit him up um, on the land deals. And this is just because I'm, I'm looking at land right now. How does it work with getting a mortgage on land? It's, it's tough. So the, the, land deal that we have here, we bought nine acres. And on the nine acres, we actually- Where are you right now, by the way? I'm in the Chicago suburbs right now. Okay. So um, I'm out here and it was weird for me because you come out here and there's land everywhere. And on Long Island, there's none anywhere. So I was like, well, why wouldn't we just buy all of it? And everyone was like, well, just because it's land doesn't mean it's valuable. And I'm like, I disagree, but I was wrong because there's a lot of it here. But so we wound up buying this nine acres that was, um, it's crazy, man, because the my buddy Jared always talks about, he's like, I jog around and I find properties. And I'm like, no, you don't do. Nobody jogs around and finds properties. And sure enough, I went like jogging and my business partner was like, did you see that for sale sign? So like winter started coming and the leaves started falling off the trees. And there was an old for sale sign that had just kind of been buried by all the trees. So I called and I was like, hey, you got this property. And the guy didn't even remember he had it anymore. And he's like, yeah, she wants like 700 something thousand dollars for it. 
And so he kept calling me every day. And I was like, dude, I don't, I don't even know like much about land. What I would be able to offer you, you would, you'd be insulted by. So I don't even want to waste your time. And he was like, no, go ahead. Just make an offer. So we offered like 300 grand and he was like, she'll take it. And I was like, huh. So we, we negotiated in a cell tower. So we have a cell tower on the land. So there's actually income, but we had to take out private money. So like I deal a lot with, with private money, whereas there's Wait, people you that, put a, you, you thought of getting a cell tower to come on the property. Is that like a tax? No, thing? Oh. It, it was already on there. So like that was part of the deal is like, Hey, we'll pay X for the land, but we want the cell tower included in the land. So they, they had, um, what does that mean included on the land? So like she could have sold it and then not had the tower be part of the sale. She could have kept it. So like, that's like, since we've purchased it, we've gone and we've literally subdivided that land. So the, whatever area that's considered around the cell tower is considered a different plot now. So if I want to turn around and I want to sell the nine acres, I don't have to include it. It's completely different parcel than the cell tower. So I can sell the land and I can keep the cell tower for the next 50 or 60 years because I have a lease with T-Mobile and I, I think with like Verizon for like 50 years or something like that. So they pay you rent to have it on there. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. And we, we get called all the time. People just offer us hundreds of thousands of dollars just to take it. But we're like, well, you know, with the escalations and like they were random, they called us last year. They were like, hey, 5G is popular now. Can we pay you like 15 grand to put like a 5G bump on your tower? And I was like, sure. So like they do stuff like that. So like, but so until the land- you, until, you, until people start growing ears on their forehead. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to be a little weird. At that point, I'm out. I'm out. I'm <laughs> yeah, out yeah. waiting for that. It's not yours anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the land, like it's hard because there's no collateral. So it's, it's tough to get them. So we had to take a private loan. So we, we reached out to some of the private investors that had lent us on other stuff. We were so like, this hey, would be, is this considered a hard money loan? I'm sorry. Uh, private, private money loan. So like a hard money loan would be more of, like an institution that that's like brokering it out with like big money companies and people that are pulling the money in private money would be more like, you know, friends and family or people that you've done stuff with where, you know, somebody like you that would say like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready for a fight, but I have some money I want to put to work. And I'm like, well, I have this deal. I can pay you X and Y return and it's secured by X, Y, and Z. And then they go, okay, yeah, you know what? I just took a beating on the stock market. I was only making like 4%. If you could pay me 10%, I'll throw you my money for a year. It's like stuff like that that kind of happens over the years of relationships. This, this is your pitch to everybody, isn't it? Not is really. I mean, it's kind of- <laughs> That is how you do it right there. I'm in. <laughs> All right? You end up, you, you go into big deals. You find these great big deals, right? And then you'll go around to different people that you know have a lot of money and you'll be like, hey, listen- if you want 10% back on your money, I could guarantee, oh, do you guarantee it? Or it's Oh, like, no, that's very illegal to do. We definitely don't guarantee it. Oh, you don't guarantee it, but you have a high percentage chance of getting it back with your previous deals. Yeah. Right? So you, like, could show your, you could show your resume, right? Yeah. And there's different ways you can do it. Like if it's a commercial building or something like that, like I'm trying to put this mobile home park together with one of my lenders now, and it's just a matter of working out like, okay, this will be this won't be a flip. Like for flips, it's so much easier because in six to 12 months, they're out. Like you fix up the yeah. property, you sell it. But for the buy and holds, you know, it, it's a little bit more of a marriage type of deal. So you have to have those conversations up front of, am I paying you annually? Are we doing what's called like you're, you're a debt lender? So I'm just going to pay you like a, a, a return. Or do you want to be an equity lender? And I think you and I had a conversation about this at one point that you were asking me like, what do I pay? And you were like, I don't understand. You're keeping 90%. But it was like they invested for the security of just getting a return. Because if somebody wants to invest and be like a, a an equity partner, then yeah, they could potentially make a lot more money, but they're risking like, if we don't do well on this, then you don't get that either. So people usually like just a safe return, but sometimes people are like, no, 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 this looks like it has a good spread. Like, so for the, for instance, yeah. the land. 
I think it land. depends on where everybody is with their yeah. like with their with their money. Like if you have so much money, you're doing those triple net leases, right? Like you have no worries. You're not getting what do you get? Like five percent back on triple net leases? Probably. I don't. Yeah, I don't like know. it's not a lot, but it's It's almost guaranteed. It's very safe and it's like steady income. So if you got a billion dollars, that might be something you know you could do. But if you are trying to take it to the next level, you're not quite there yet. You want to take those a little bit more risk risky maneuvers at least in my mind you could yeah, actually yeah. you could actually argue back the other side of that as well but being more risky when you're a billionaire too yeah, yeah you know it, it's again just depends on people's risk tolerance and, and i feel like it depends on time too you know some people they just want to throw you the money and they don't want to have any of the stress that's kind of why they did that a lot of the time it's people that have tried to do stuff they didn't really work out and they're like you know what i've been listening to your podcast or i looked at that deal i've always wanted to get into it but i don't understand it enough because you know, I took a lot of beatings over the years, like learning kind of what to do and what not to do. And so sometimes people like the security of like, you know what, I'll just give it to you and you can throw those things in there, but the deal has to make sense. So, you know, like uh, the, the land back to the land deal, it's yeah when it's fixed up like lots around here. So we got it entitled for 31 townhomes. So wow. if, if I wanted to build on it, now, if you're going to build on the land, you can go to lenders and they will give you a construction loan to purchase the land and to build on the land. But if it's just raw land that you're going to hold and then sell off, it's harder to get anything but a private loan because they look at it as, well, if you don't pay us, what do we take back? There's no house there for us to say where there's value there. But when you're building, now it's a different model so they can do that. So that's basically what we did was we said, it's not really worth a lot right now, but once we bring it to the city and the city puts the stamp on it and says, this is now entitled. Here's the final plat. We have approved this for 31 lots. That instantly makes that land worth a lot more money because you can now go to a builder and be like, dude, all you have to do is build. I took the last two years. I dealt with the architects. I dealt with the engineers. I dealt with the city. I figured all this stuff out. It's all yours now. Just build it and go make money and they'll pay a premium for that. So on the low side, you know, lots are selling for 30,000 up well over a hundred. Like these probably won't, but like, let's say at 30,000 for 31 lots, those are worth like 930. And then people are offering like two, 300 grand off the bat for the cell tower. So you have a deal now that's worth over a million dollars that we're only into it for like 315. So if I take a private lender on that, which the guy I talked to, I was like, dude, I have an offer on it at like at asking price right now, but if I really needed to, I have enough room in there that I could sell it. And if I really even needed to just break even and pay you back, there's so much equity in there that I could sell it at a discount and your money is still looking pretty safe because we have such a spread. So that's kind of where they make the decision. And sometimes if it's tighter, they don't want to do that because they're like, well, if the market swings, but you know, obviously when you get a sweeter deal, people feel safer in it because there's there's some security in being able to have that that cushion. When you get that original private loan, what's like a typical interest rate that you're going to have to pay back on that? So I normally am paying 10 to 12%. I know. Gotcha. And then when you give that land over to the contractor, right, to start building the land, how does that work at that point? So it just becomes a sale. And now there, there was a, so much stuff I learned over the process of it because each city and municipality acts completely different. Like it's, it's the Wild West. So you know, you look at Freeport and Baldwin and Rockville Center, you can't get away with the same stuff. They're going to have things that they want, things that they don't want. And it's the same thing here. So this specific place, they had something where there was another builder that came in and started building a subdivision and ran out of money in the middle, sold the project off. And then the rest of the project got built a different way. So like half the houses are nice, half of them are not so nice. 
And now they're super paranoid about that. So they actually had things in there initially that they wanted you to put up like crazy money before you ever even started building as like a, a bond for like when I start doing the infrastructure and when I start pulling permits for this. And that was like kind of crazy. And then they wanted you to guarantee when you sold it that whoever, if they bailed on it, you're still responsible and on the hook for any of the fees that the city would have for you building. So we had to hire an attorney and have them negotiate that like, no, like this is not up to us. When we sell it, all the liability and responsibility goes off to the to the builders. So you know, that was all part of the negotiations and part of the contracts that we had to make with the village for them to approve it. So now they approved the project. So when builders call me now, if they say, well, I don't want to build 31 townhomes, I want to build 52 tiny homes, or I want to build a multi-unit, or I don't want the houses to look like this. I want it to be three stories or ranches or different colors. The project has been approved. So they'll have to actually go back to the city and almost go through that whole process, which is expensive and time-consuming. So you know, the, that, that's part of what it is, is if a builder is going to take it over, their life is easier because the city already approved that project. So they can build that project. If they want to change it, they're going to have to go do that. And that's going to kind of be on them. And, and that's really what we're dealing with right now. We have an accepted offer, but the guy wants to do something slightly different. And that's where there's risk of, I mean, especially dude, we were the, we were the first zoom ever for like a, a village meeting in the state. So the meeting stopped for COVID. And then we were like, dude, our, our project needs to get approved. So they were like, well, we're going to start doing this Zoom thing. And I figured nobody was going to be on it. It was a disaster, dude. Everybody was on it. And they were so rude. And it was like all the etiquette of having to get up in front of a hall and be there in front of like the police and everybody and say like, well, we don't like this. Or we don't like that. It turned into like the Twitter that people are on. They're just chatting away, saying all the stuff they hate. So yeah, yeah. it wound up being like a disaster. Favorite. Yeah, yeah. And then they... Um, you know, so the, you're you're literally at the beck and of their mood. How do they feel that day? Do they not want to be there? Did somebody say something? And if so, they're like, "No, nah, not approved. We don't want to do that." So mm. it's it's a it's a crazy process that you can invest a lot of money in, and then the city could say, "Nah, you know what? We just decided we don't like that anymore, and we're just wow. not going to do that." And you're kind of screwed. So it was kind of crazy, but yeah. So in, this uh, is where it helps to be politically uh, connected. It sounds like right. This is this is why people run for office. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it really. Having somebody in your corner I, is is so huge. Like there was this one guy at the city that we talked to from the beginning. And, you know, it goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about where everybody has an opinion on stuff. Everybody will tell you, this is bad. This is dangerous. Don't do that, blah, blah, blah. And I remember like I called up the village and I spoke to the guy and I was like, hey, man, I know you can't do commercial. You can't do this. You can't do that. All these things you guys have already shot down. And he was like, why do you think that? I'm like, well, I talked to this broker and I talked to this other guy. He's like, I'm the only guy who makes those decisions nobody's ever called me on any of these things. I'm open to whatever. He's like, the problem is people call with a phone call and I tell them to bring something in and then they never do. He's like, but if you're willing to like put some time into this and it makes sense, I'll help you figure out how to get this done. And so from day one, we worked with him for probably a year before we actually even bought it to the rest of the village. Cause he was like, I understand the people in this village and I understand the people on this board. I know how to speak that language. So I'll work with you to get it to a point where when you bring it to them, we can get it passed through. Because if you don't, like Walmart has come in here and gotten shut down because they didn't know how to play the game right by you know doing things like even having like basic stuff. Like if you're going to do something, you're going to build, no matter how nice it is, there's going to be people who don't like it. So you have like a, 
a meet and greet the week before with like cake and cookies and coffee and some drinks. And you let all the people that are mad blow their steam off Ben. And then you kind of love them up. And then the next week when you have the meeting, they're not firing off because they already got out of their system. And he's like, just those little things of like knowing how to play the game a little bit, like you said, and knowing the politics of it can make the difference between you getting a million dollar project approved or denied. It's crazy, man. It's it's all the people business, what, everything. What's like what's like the biggest holdups with this specific thing? Like what what would they have like oppose? So in this specific one, it probably isn't the normal stuff that you would see because there was so many people that were residents that, so you have to notify people within like a certain radius of where it's going to be built. You have to post notices and all the people that lived in that neighboring subdivision, they didn't want anything built next to it. It's raw land. They liked that there was deer there. They like looking at the foxes there. They, so at the end yeah. of the day, they, they started having concerns like, well, what kinds of houses are you putting there? What's the price point going to be? Because we don't want to live next to some dump or some cheap houses that people aren't going to take care of. And then are they going to come into our walking paths? And you know, how does this affect X, Y, and Z? And how does this affect the drainage? So you're bringing in architects and you're bringing in engineers to show like, no, the way this is built, it's not going to run things into you. You're not going to be put off by the construction. These people are going to have their own walking paths. There's a park for the kids. The cell tower is going to be so-and-so away from you. So all these little design things that they're worried about, but most of it comes down to that they just kind of wanted to be heard and they didn't want to live like anybody. You don't want to live next to a trashy, half-built, crappy looking yeah. thing with bad neighbors. I think that was the biggest concern. So when they were and and they don't understand when you tell them. So when you're able to actually spend some money and bring them drawings and bring them the architectural designs and show them like this is what these things are going to look like. And now they can do the oohs and ahs of, oh, okay, like. That's what that that does look really nice. And we would love that. And thank you for this. And the the final thing that happened was just just hearing them. You know, they're everything that they were worried about. I took like two months and I looked into how do we relocate the deer? What happens to the foxes? Like, can we put a park in there? Can we gift some of this land to the village? Can we put like, can we save some of these trees? Can we relocate relocate some of these trees? And you went back and you got the answers. And then I just went back and I was like, here's the things we can do, here's the things we can't do. I'll lose a unit. I'll spread these ones out a little bit more. It's going to cost me money at the end, but that's what you guys were looking for. So here's my happy medium. And that's kind of what I learned from that was at the end, the other developers and builders that had came in, it was just butting heads. It was just battling, battling, battling. We want this. Well, we're not going to do this. And when you step back and you're just like, I heard you, I tried everything I could to make you feel heard and give you what you wanted. Here's realistically what I could do and what I couldn't do. Tell me what else to do and I'm happy to try. And then they feel like you made the effort for them. We had no problems after that. It just took a while to get to that and kind of yeah. put your ego aside and just be there to kind of like listen rather than talk. I mean, this is a lot of work. You're you're in Chicago right now. This is you said over a year, kind of. Yeah, you've been working on this deal, especially oh, COVID. more than that. Yeah, more than that because it was before the pandemic. You're taking a risk. Three hundred thousand dollars. You got to take a loan out, right? Fifteen yeah. percent, ten to twelve percent mm-hmm. uh, interest rate. Um, and then you got to have all these architects, right? Yeah, so you, you're paying with loan money to, for these architects as well. That's like another part of it. So I, I, was out of I was out of pocket. I was out of pocket for a long time on that. So I put up a lot of money for that. And then we kind of originally somebody, I was like, hey, I'll take my, that's what got me into private lending was I had properties and I was like, I'm buying this. And people were like, well, like, how do I get in on that? And I'm like, well, I could pay you the same thing I was going to pay this, this hard money lender, but if you want it, I'd rather pay you. And then they start going, well, well, if it was such a good deal, why didn't you just buy it? Why wouldn't you put your own money in? And I go, well, I did. You asked me. So I'm willing to take mine out and put yours in. 
and I'll go find another one. And that's kind of what happened here was they were like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in making a return. And I'm like, well, I'm like another hundred grand deep into this property. If you want, I'll pull mine out and put yours in. And so I wound up kind of doing that with it. But the nice part about this one is there's cash flow every month. So it does cover like monthly expenses or interest on the loan or taxes and some stuff like that from the cell phone tower. And, um, you know, you just have to have those things of people, people have to just be pretty understanding. And luckily they have been about, you know, this wasn't how long we expected it to go, but there's a freaking pandemic. You know what I mean? Like the village shut down. I don't, you know, I'm doing everything we can. And I think- How many partners do you have in a deal like this? Uh, So it's just me, my one partner, and then our lenders. So there's only three of us. Wow. And um, obviously it's taking up a lot of your time, but you have other things going on as well. Like you're buying and hold, you you have some properties that you still are buying and holding, right? And then maybe flipping or whatever. Like, how do you, how do you break up your day uh, with something as big as this? And then some of the other things that you're probably more comfortable doing. You know, the, the big deals at, at this point of it, take less time. It's more, you know, making a point every day to kind of follow up with this guy or follow up with the architect or follow up with the offer. Um, but I'm still trying to work on how to prioritize things. The best, one of the things that my partner kind of talked me into doing was, you know, we had like a hundred multi-units we sold off and I was traveling all over the country and I was doing all this stuff. And I didn't realize how I was not focusing on everything because I was all over the place. And when you realize on these bigger deals and when you have other people's money in these deals, the little things add up 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times the expenses when you have 50, 60, 70 units on these things. And it can get out of control fast. So I made a deal with her that until we finished getting the land annexed in and entitled, I wouldn't hold anything big until we could focus on it. So I still started getting people sending me deals. And what what wound up happening was when I sold off the 100 multi-units, I put them up for sale and I had so many people, even still, like I leave the ads up and people just reach out and they go, Hey, is that still for sale? Was this pre-COVID? Yeah, this is pre-COVID. Gotcha. So I'll go. Um, do you wish that you kept them for post-COVID? Yeah. Yeah. Because right <laughs> now, do. right? Like I it do. probably yeah. skyrocketed multi, multi-family, multi-family units. Yeah. Are you kidding me? They're like impossible to get now, right? I don't think that there's anything that anybody has ever sold that right now they wish they didn't keep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, it just goes good. Yeah. But so, um, yeah. So I started finding all these people that were serious buyers that were looking for stuff. And so as I started coming across other multifamily projects or other uh, mobile home parks and a lot of this stuff, people think you need like crazy money to get in, but you can get into like a small to mid-sized apartment building or mobile home park for under a million dollars. You know, if, if you can get a loan on that at 75%, you're talking for like under 300 grand, you can get into like a, an okay or a pretty decent size commercial deal. So I started finding those deals and just going back to these people and saying like, look, I, I promised my partner I wouldn't buy and hold anything to stabilize right now, but this is a great deal for you. And then I started just kind of going through and making videos and spreadsheets and all these things of this is why it's a good deal. These are the numbers. This is why I see it in the next five to 10 years doing. Here's the things you should be worried about. Here's the things you need to make sure you're taking care of. Here's the kind of returns you can get. Here's the type of loans. And it's just kind of like spelling it out because most people don't know what they're looking at. So I kind of mm-hmm. made a point of doing that and then giving it to them and saying like, I'll help you bring this to closing and I'll work my fee and it's included in what you're paying for it. So I started basically wholesaling commercial deals. And I liked it because it it's helped keep me 
on top of what's happening. It helps me learn because that due diligence process of like setting up the teams and getting the leases and running the numbers and, and interviewing people and putting management in place and looking at what the market rents are and what they rent, all that stuff is like a skill that you always have to be doing. So people are, are frightened to do that. And there's so many people now like that reach out from California and Texas. And they're like, man, I bought these properties. I own three or four of them. I don't make a ton of money on the cash flow, but the equity is through the roof. So I'd rather refinance them and give you the money to help me buy an apartment building somewhere else, or I'll just sell them and I'll give you money and we can partner up on stuff. So it kind of happens organically like that. And that's been keeping me, that's been keeping me pretty busy. Um, the the time consuming part of that is just really reaching out to people who reached out to me. It's especially after I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast, there's still people that it's crazy how many people reach out to you on all the different platforms. So that's pretty time consuming to keep up on and just touch base with people. I'm sure some people are pissed I haven't gotten back to them yet. And then it um, takes time. There's more people pissed at me, I bet. So, so. <laughs> not anymore, man. You're like America's sweetheart now. No, I don't know. They, I, getting back to people? Are you kidding me? I'm the worst. Even my friends and family, it's impossible. <laughs> I can't get back to anybody. Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> kind of what we've been doing. And then my 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 other focus has been what's called subject two deals, which I don't know if, if you've heard of those, but that's such a great thing right now that I'm looking to pick up another ten rentals. Um, I'm hoping to get five here in Chicago and five in Florida in the next like you know three to six months. And that's been a really great strategy that we just did one of. That was a learning process, but it's awesome. Wait, what is that? You get it's called subject to investing. So basically, like you don't have to actually buy the property, you just take it over. So if I don't want to worry about like credit pulls and loans and, and fees and closing costs and reports and all this stuff, you can find somebody that just wants to get out of the property. So like this last one we did. They were going through a divorce. They were behind on their mortgage, and the the house, the in laws had moved in and trashed the house. And you know, I, I called them a few times prior, being like, "Hey, would you sell? Would you sell? Would you sell?" We're interested. And then one day, I just got a call back, and she was like, "Look, if you want it, just take it. I want out of it. I don't want anything to do with the house. I don't want anything to do with the family. You can have it." And so I looked at it, and the numbers weren't like great for a flip because they weren't really honest about what it needed. But I was like, you know, if you just let me take over your mortgage, you know, you have. 15, 20 years left on it. You have a low interest rate. Your payments are, I think the payments were like 1600 or something like that, which would actually drop lower because they had PMI on it. So once we hit that 80%, it's worth like 280 and market rents, we're getting 2600 for it. So we took over everything. We caught up their mortgage. And then now I own the house. I put the tenants in. It's cash flowing because of their payments. And we bought it with like 20 to 25% equity in it already. So, you know, I didn't have to qualify for a loan. I had to do anything. I just literally took over the loan subject to the existing mortgage. And now I have a cash flowing property with equity in it that I didn't have to do a lot to in an area that the tenants are going to pay it down. It's very desirable. We had like 50 applications in like a week. So we're looking for more there, but there's tons of demand there. The rents will go higher. It's in a good school district. So it'll pay itself down. And that becomes like that retirement plan again of like, you know, for under five or 10 grand, you can go and you can pick up some of these properties that have equity and cash flow built in and just hold them. So you now know, you have a management company that I guess is handling getting all the rentals in there and everything and making sure it's handled right. I normally have. This is the first time I didn't do that. If it was a commercial property, I would, but it's kind of crazy how since COVID happened, even basic stuff like Zillow, like you can do background checks, credit checks, criminal history checks. Um, you can audit all their stuff. You can do electronic key locks. You can do like ACH, like everything you need to set up. You can do basically electronically through Zillow. And this one happens to be pretty close to me, but 
Um, I mean, the management would come in basically for screening the tenant, which we didn't need to do because it was there was just so much demand. And then for the collecting rents and stuff, it's it's all automated. So I mean, it's at some point I probably will go back to that, or if I have a difficult tenant. But the guy that I the guy that renting out the house actually knows who you are. He's the wrestling coach for the local high school. Oh, good idea! So as soon as I met him, I looked at him and I looked at his ears and I was like, "Are you a wrestler?" He's like, "Yeah, wow, you know, like." Typical like wrestling coach, like just hard, hard nosed guy, cauliflower yeah. ears, can't really like, hear you like talk too loud. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, even when they were looking at it, he was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on this. So he's the guy that like when they move out, the house is probably gonna be in better condition than when they moved in. So um, yeah, but as that starts to grow, I'm sure I'll outsource that. But I have a management company that's I'm kind of running it. But yeah, so it all goes through a quote unquote management company that I will outsource. But right now with the residential stuff, it's it's pretty easy to automate if you have a house that doesn't really need a lot because everything just kind of got fixed up and the tenant's really not a pain in the butt. You know, I haven't yeah. really needed to do that. But all I, the out-of-state stuff, yeah, I do. I still don't understand how you're doing all this. This is a lot of stuff. This is crazy. And then you still train jujitsu like almost every day, right? Like you, you're obsessed with doing jujitsu. I am obsessed with doing jujitsu. I haven't been as good since the pandemic just because of stuff here in Chicago, but that's starting to end now. When I'm in New York, I'm training every single possible day I can, which by the way, I had a crew you. down. I had a crew down. I know. You. I saw. Hey, I'm happy you guys got a workout in. I Thanksgiving week, going back to New York, we had so many people we needed to see, including family and friends and everything. And my wife has had a schedule, and of course, I don't pay attention. And I'm like, yeah, let's work out on Wednesday, two o'clock. And I don't realize until like that day around two o'clock, like, oh shit, I actually <laughs> told my wife I have to do something. That was no good, I, man. It's yeah, good to see Longo awesome. and Jamie and everybody for Vola was in there. We got some good roles. You know, I, I always try and go in there and uh and see them, but everybody was excited to get beat up by you. By me? Yeah. Oh, no, come on. You know, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to go back to that, the, the land deal real fast because I, I'm not sure. I, you might have said it, but um, I don't remember. So a deal like that that takes so long takes takes a lot of time. You know, you're doing politician. You know, you're getting bagels and you know donuts <laughs> for everybody and making them like you. There has to be big money that you're going to be making back on that. I would assume. So yeah. what what is the hope on something like that? So you guys put three hundred seven thousand dollars in. You're doing all this due diligence and all this work to make it work, and and you don't even know if it it one hundred percent is yet. And what is the hope that you guys get back on a deal like that that the guy buys it for? We have it under contract at 9.30. Nice. Yeah. So, so and, and we get to keep the tower. So we, we have it at 9.30 and then we still have the tower that's worth a few hundred grand and has the income and has a lease with the cell carriers for the next 50 years that increases like, I think, 3% a year or something like that. So we'll make out good on it for sure. So you pay back the, the hard money loaner guy, right? Or the private, private money? Yep. And then, uh, and then the rest is yours and your partner's. Yep. So what we'll and probably then tax, do then you get tax, Do you get tax on that? Oh, you get 10, 1031. Yeah. So that's what we'll do is we'll start looking at it for where do we want to roll this into, which is another reason why I like the fact that I'm I'm still kind of active in the commercial stuff, even though we haven't bought anything this year, because I need to be ready when these sell that now we'll have to do that. So it'll probably be like a 60, 90 day process for these guys to close it out. And then when that starts coming, I'll start to try and cherry pick what the best deals will be out there to kind of replant that back in. Yeah. And, and about like during the pandemic right now to find commercial real estate and everything, like you're probably not going to be getting the best price point on, on something right now. Um, obviously the good on the money that you are you getting. So it worked out, but where, how's your, how's your head deal with that? You know, it's the value add side of that. It, it, you go back and forth. If you're willing to put the time in 
to kick out drug dealers and fix up the units and, and train the new management company. There's money to be made on that. I just know that I've done that and it's it caused a lot of brain damage too. So we would just need to figure out, do we want to focus on a value add and like really put the time into doing that? In which case there's opportunity out there if you're willing to do what other people won't. Or if you just want to throw your money into something that's already fixed up and stabilizing cash flowing, you're probably not going to get the best rate of return. Um, there's a lot of big hedge funds and money out there. There's a cap rate compression, but it's always the the crystal ball, man. You know, it's like, do you wait another year or two to see if things go down? Or in two years, is it even worse? And now you wished you bought it before. And you know what I've learned just from investing through market cycles is you know, with cash flow properties, especially with like good rentals, especially now when there's no demand, I mean, there's tons of demand, there's no supply, like you're, you're going to be okay on those. Like, even if you're not getting the best rate, you know, some of the properties I'm selling now, when you look at them, they don't make, they're not going to make you rich year one. They're not going to make you rich year two, but you start to look at like a 10, 15 years, like each one of those becomes a massive retirement plan when everything's kind of paid down, and you know, after the 10, 15 year mark, if you just fix the thing up and now stuff starts to go, you sell it off. You know, you're into it for a 10 cap, you sell it off at like a four or five cap to a hedge fund, you're gonna be fine no matter what, because you bought it for the cash flow. It's really the stuff that you're the higher end stuff is where I see it really being dangerous, where I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be looking for more of those like C B working class areas, like very average income neighborhoods, because those those did pretty well through the last crash and through the pandemic still. They really did all right. It's the high-end stuff and the low-end stuff that I saw having a lot of problems. Uh, last question, and then I'm going to let you go. My wife wanted to know, because she watched, she listens to Bigger Pockets. the rent to retire. Do you know? Are you familiar with rent to retire? It's like, it's a company. Damn it. I was hoping you just knew what it was. It's so a company. You, that, have okay. you never heard of it? Is it one of their sponsors? It's one of their sponsors. And she was like, she wants to know if it's legit. <laughs> and you know, you got to remember that anybody that's on any of those shows is is paying to be on there to get that exposure. And I would say, in my experience over the years, if there was one thing that I definitely did wrong, it was being naive and trusting people instead of doing my own work. And that's burned me worse than anything over the years. So even if they're a good, because there, there's people that are are good people that didn't mean stuff, but you know, maybe you had a bad day, maybe you missed something, maybe you just didn't know. And then that winds up being something that I didn't know to ask. And now it costs me money. So even if it is a reputable company, if you're going to buy real estate, do as much due diligence as, as you possibly can on the company, on the people you're dealing with and on the property. I don't care how good every, they might have a thousand good reviews about them. They might've never had a bad deal. What if you're the one, you know? So just always be extra, extra, extra diligent on the person and on the property. You know, I, I'm, I can't push that enough. Like, even if I said, I've heard of them, they're great. I know 20 people that have used them had no problems. You still want to act like you could be the one. And so you want to be like super, super, super careful about looking at all the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of what's going into that deal. All right. Tell the people where we can find Nick Lamagna, uh, anything that you got going on. I know you got an awesome podcast and uh, uh, your website and all that stuff. Just start you know, tell the people. Sure. So uh, nicknicknick.com slash links will basically get you all of my social media and it will get you all of the places you can listen to the A-Game podcast. Um, it's every, pretty much every outlet you can think of the A-Game podcast. You might have to type in my name, comes up weird sometimes, but if a great guest like Chris Wyman, uh, the Bigger Pockets guys on there, 
nicknicknick.com is my website. And, uh, you know, basically nicknicknick.com slash links, you can find, find everything and anywhere. And then I have like a free checklist that I give out for finding value for if you're a real estate agent, a broker, or a wholesaler, nicknicknick.com slash bigger pockets. And, uh, other than that, if you want to find me and beat me up, I'm either at Sarah Jiu Jitsu Law MMA or the BJJ Lab in Naperville. And he ain't afraid of nobody. This guy calls me out. <laughs> he calls me out specifically all the time. I'll, I will say there's not too many people on this planet and not to think I'm the man or anything that will text me because they want to do jujitsu with me. Dude, it's an odd. <laughs> you are. Why you so are. Hard? You are one of the very few, if any. That uh, I truly want to work out with me. I, I, yeah, like I'm, I get to the gym. I'm so excited to like work with people and everyone's like, you know, they don't want to do it. I'm like, why wouldn't what? you? It doesn't make sense to me. I want, oh, I love, I, I always like to go with anybody, like anybody who's the best. Um, not to say I'm the best, you know, now I'm cocky. No, you're, you're, you're up there, man. You're, yeah, but you're, no, no, no. Listen, I'm no Jason Rao. I bring different I'm, animalistic, uh, instincts to the to the table for sure but jason rao is ridiculous he's so good um the the level jujitsu has gone up so much over the last like five years especially with the leg lock stuff and danaher has a lot to do with it with the systematic approach to it you know just very um systematic with the way you break down each move and and how it, it patterns into the next move um i love it so much and but like guys, like guys that can focus it on focus on it, you know, seven days a week. Um, it's hard for me now. I, I mean, I, I'm, I could do good. I could probably catch almost anybody in a submission. I could get them probably one time, um, but uh, regularly, no, that doesn't happen anymore against the top, top, top guys. Like I'm talking about, like Jason Rao, Gordon Ryan. Um, you know, there was a time where I would, I would put a beat down on anybody. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but I will say, like jujitsu has evolved, and I haven't been able to put the time in in order to stay on that level, um, because it's just you really need to be drilling all day long. There's so much that these guys are just take it to a level that you need to put the time in. You need to put the time in, and with stand up and everything else that you know, I got to focus on. You can't, you can't, you can't do it. So, would you do that again? Like knowing now that. Because now there's career jujitsu guys, you know what I mean? Like when, when I started going down, a shout out to Matt Sarah, by the way, uh, to teachers, my, my favorite teacher, one of the funniest people ever. But he, um, you know, it, you couldn't really make a career in MMA when like him and Drago were first starting out there like 10, 15 years ago. Now you could make a living as a jujitsu guy. If you were starting out now and you could just all day train jujitsu and make like Gordon Ryan money doing that, would you still do MMA? Yeah, I would still do, do MMA, to be honest. But I would... Um, I would a hundred percent do all the tournaments, you know, I, the Abu Dhabis and everything. Um, when I had injuries, I, I was able to do that, uh, in the meantime, like, you know, while I was still fighting, but I love jujitsu so much, but I also love fighting. I think fighting is a scarier thing, a more uncomfortable thing. Um, and I like putting myself in uncomfortable situations, you know, just like you said, um, in order to grow, you know, you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. And when you take that time off, those are things that I'll regret that I didn't do. So I always, I, not that I'm perfect at it. I'm a lazy bastard way too much, but for the most part, I'd like to, I, I, I want to, and if I don't, I regret it, put myself in, uh, as the most uncomfortable situations and sitting there in a the locker room, getting ready to walk out to a fight and you don't know what's going to happen. You'd like to get broken in half. It's a scary thing. You know, and uh, it's it's awesome to 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 face that fear and go through with it against some of the best guys in the world. Um, Jiu-jitsu doesn't have that much of a fear factor uh, in comparison to that, so that's why I enjoy fighting uh, more. 
wrestling, I mean, jujitsu is something I could do for the rest of my life. Like you said, you could compare it to golf and I want to be really good at it. I want to, I want to be able to do that, you know, for the rest of my life. But at this point, when I'm done fighting, when I'm done fighting, how about this? When I'm done fighting, I'm going to surprise some people. I'm going to come out and I'll be doing some uh, fun jujitsu tournaments and uh, probably like, you know, super fights or whatever, because I love jujitsu and I feel like people forgot how good I am at it. And I want to, and I want to let people know I'm out here and I'm out here in South Carolina. And uh, I just feel like, you know, everyone's, you know, random people they don't really know me you know and uh they start talking about like brazilian jiu-jitsu people you know that they you know they're at these jiu-jitsu schools and they're talking about their sensei and and uh they're talking down to me a little bit with it you know and i feel like compelled to let them know i'm a henzo gracie you know matt sarah you know black belt you know i feel compelled to i don't like to talk about i don't like to say these things you know but i don't even know if it has this i don't even know if they care I'm being no, talked down to Nick. I feel not, disrespect man. out here, and I feel like I got to choke people out. Yeah, very fast. I got one little skinny leg, and people <laughs> people are forgetting. Well, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I told uh, I was talking to somebody when we were at Longos, and I was like, I really wanted Chris to come down so we could take a picture, and I could say, "What has three hands, three legs, and loves jujitsu?" These guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's really why you wanted me to come down. <laughs> now, the, now the truth comes out. Yeah, um, your jujitsu for years. I think it was crazy when you got your black belt and people were like, oh, he, he doesn't deserve a black belt. I'm like, Matt Serra and Henzo Gracie personally gave this dude his black belt. We have some great guys down there that I watch you. To, like your jujitsu is definitely top, top, top. I don't think people realize until they roll with you. Like I remember Tim Kennedy in interviews talking about how he'd roll with you and it didn't go well. And, you know, the stuff Anthony Smith, I watched him in a lot of those, um, like the whatever the the fight pass tournaments were that he his jujitsu was outstanding and he, like all, to watch all these guys give you credit for how good you actually are I think is uh, is awesome and I always love it. it always makes me like people more when they say good things about you. No, I appreciate that. It makes me like them more too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, thank you. You know what it is like it, it does feel good when it's guys from out of our team, you know, from out of state and you know out from different gyms because everyone has their own little loyalties towards their team. So when you have a guy that you roll with that's from a different team and then they you've made an impact on them to where they're now impressed by you, it means a little bit more. It's like sometimes, you know, people could, you know, on your own team could like uh over what's the word i'm looking for could be a little uh over overdo it as far as like you know uh describing somebody's skill set you know and, and try to like make it seem bigger than what it is what the hell's the word i'm looking for but forget it um but when you get a guy from out of town from a different team and they're saying it's like they have no reason to be doing that and that's gives you a little confidence boost for sure that's awesome, man. And you do that, bro. You're great at that. You go everywhere around the country and roll with random people. You know, that's a scary thing to do. I you know, it. you go random gyms and people, you know, people want to prove themselves against you and they want to show you, especially your black belt now. Like, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that. And a lot of people and the reason why people don't continue to grow, uh, especially when they become become a black belt is because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to lose anymore. They don't they want to feel like they made it. But when you go into all these different gyms and and you put yourself out there with people and even in your own gym, you really, you're going to get humbled. It doesn't end. It doesn't end being a black belt. <laughs> okay. There's always people out there that are going to strangle you, you know? So uh, I do admire that you do that. And uh, I know that can't be completely, completely comfortable walking into random gyms. You know, it doesn't feel normal, right? No, it's, it's always weird. You never know. And, you know, generally when I'm doing it, it's super early in the morning. So it's like me and 
sometimes some Brazilian guy that like I can't really communicate with and he just kind of locks the door and we're just kind of in there. So it's weird. But, you know, ov- overall, it's uh, it's pretty cool. You know, there's always that fear when you're walking in the parking lot and when you're rolling out of bed and you're like, maybe I won't go. And, you you know, like anything else, you try and find the excuses. And then when you go in there and you meet somebody and you make a new friend and you learn something cool and, you know, you, you can kind of tell right away, like, you know, once you kind of lock up with somebody, like something about them. So you get to share that with somebody. And it's it's one of the biggest things I miss about traveling. Like uh, everything I think of now, it's like, well, I have a good jujitsu guy there, good jujitsu school here. And it's, uh, you know, it's always a little intimidating the first time, but there's not as, there's only one time I can ever think of that. Uh, it wasn't like the greatest thing ever. I usually walk out there and, and you just feel great, man. It makes your whole day better. Like there's, I, I just love traveling and waking up early and learning new things and meeting new people. And like you said, you know, just something about getting out of bed early, being scared to go there, but going there and doing it anyway. And now it's like, 6 a.m. and you've already conquered like this huge thing of the day it just makes everything else so much better, man. It's, it's like a high. Mm, clip that. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, bro, there's something with jujitsu that, it, like you said, you lock up with somebody, you really get to know somebody on a different level. As soon as you, as soon as you start doing jujitsu and you go on live with somebody, you get to know like their intent. You get to like know them as a person on a really crazy uh, high level. Um, that it's hard to really describe all the insecurities, all the doubts, all the confidence and the ego, everything. You can feel it all. And then you kind of get to know where somebody's really at. And uh, it, it's really cool that it, it's a level playing field on those masks because it doesn't matter if you're big or you're small. Maybe a little advantage is being big, but there's also advantages being small. You know, like some of the hardest guys I've ever gone with are smaller guys. You know, they're pain in the ass. The bigger guys, for the most part, I'm actually all right with. Is take take Gordon Ryan's name out of there. Uh, he said Jason Rouse is toughest match to date. Jason uh, Gordon Ryan said that. Yeah. Did they, they? They didn't compete, did they? Oh yeah, they did. They did, and he, he's actually he's supposed to be on my podcast in a week or two. When did when did they compete? Like back in the day? I didn't see it. I didn't see it, but like I think years they, ago they competed. It must have been because I. I mean, I feel like I would have known about it if it was sometime soon because I didn't even know that they had a match or anything. I just know that he had said that. Yeah, Jason Rao, R A R A U. A lot of people don't know him yet. Um, he is so good, man. He's so good in the gym. Uh, I think he, you know, he's right there with the Gordon Ryan's uh, of the world. And there's really only one Gordon Ryan. Um, he's right there. And but as far as like com- confidence and competing and and proving it, he's still. I don't think he's not there yet. He's had injuries and stuff, but man, he is. He's a freaking problem. He's a beast. He. I will, <laughs> with him, I will literally try to attack. I will try to heal hook him. He's unbelievable with heel hooks. So I, I put myself right in there. And I tried, I do everything the, the way I think I'm supposed to be doing it. And he just looks at me while <laughs> I'm doing it. And he like, you know, maneuvers my foot just a little bit to the left and a little bit then the next, you know, the other foot a little bit to the right. And I'm, I'm working to get the heel hook with everything I have. And his face is just completely calm. And I'm like, you're steps ahead of me right now. <laughs> You, you're just steps ahead. You're more comfortable than me because you have drilled this so many more times than I've been in this situation that I can't even imagine. So you can't fake that confidence that he has. That's confidence from hard work and discipline and, and repetition. And uh, when you feel that, and Gordon Ryan has that same thing, you know, you, you realize you're, you're competing, you're, you're working hard and you're trying to, you want to be your best, but you realize that no matter what you do, they're 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 a step ahead of you. 
you know, and it's like, do I still just, am I going to work as hard as I can? If I know he he's chilling here anyway, like wh- what do you do there? You know, crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, bro, my man, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll do this again sometime. I appreciate you inviting me, man. Uh, I want to say that you're an inspiration, man, watching you log all the stuff you do after going through the injury you went through and what a positive outlook and spin you put on the whole thing. I just, I think it's awesome, man. I think it says a lot about you as a person. I've talked to a lot of other people that have said watching you come through this is inspiring. And uh, I appreciate that you're always willing to, to jump on the mat and train with me. I know I don't bring much to the table, but it's always fun. And a uh, shout out to your family because your dad, and your brother and your family have always been super nice to me, man. So I appreciate you having me on and talking to me today. Uh, we'll stop it. You're first of all, you're a monster on the mats, but you're even a better person. So anytime I get to spend with you is is valuable for me. So um, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mal. Enjoy the podcast. Keep it up. Thank you. All right, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, my man, Nikki Knuckles, born and raised in Long Island, New York, in a small town called Baldwin. Happens to be the same town that I'm from. Um, you know, super successful, but has gone through some crazy tough times. And it's awesome how much he has changed in a positive way from that. Um, and uh, it has become very successful. If you'd like to hear more of Nicky Knuckles, go check out his podcast. He's got an awesome one, the A-Game Podcast, uh, or his website, nicknicknick.com. Uh, remember, if you want to hear more conversations like this one I just had with Nick LaMagna, all you have to do is click that follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening. Every podcast is also available on my YouTube channel, so can you guys please subscribe to that? What are you waiting for? Until then, I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.